Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amar, coming to you all the way from South Louisiana and Out of Ashes Ministries. I hope you are doing well, and I hope your week is going well. Uh, we got a great episode today, and I don't want to um, waste too much time before getting into it, because we got a lot to talk about and a lot to cover. So let me just say a quick welcome to everybody who's catching up with us for the first time, and uh, thank you guys for listening so much, and to our IBR, Image Bearers Radio family. Uh, for those of you that listen every week or have listened for a while, thank you guys as well, uh, guys and gals, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, whatever, uh, and we uh, just appreciate you so very, very much. Hey, if you are looking for a, a Sabbath fellowship uh, to be in community with or just some uh, extra stuff to enjoy during Shabbat, I want to invite you uh, over to our website. That is outofashesministries.org, uh, over on Facebook, over on YouTube, and over on our Share Faith app. Uh, that you can download from either the Apple Store or the Google Store, and you can catch up with our uh, Shabbat Fellowship services that are live-streamed each and every week at 10 a.m. Central Time there. So we would love to see you, love to meet you, jump in the comments and say, hey, uh, and let us know where you're listening from or watching from, get involved in the comments on Facebook, and uh, all those different kinds of things, and uh, God is doing some amazing things in our fellowship, and uh, we appreciate you guys being a part of it. So before we jump into this week's episode, I invite you as always, uh, let's just have a few seconds where we go before the Father and ask Him to bless our time. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, we bless you and we are so humbly grateful that we get to spend this time together. We pray, Father, that we, that we are transformed more into your image every single moment of the day, that we look like you and spread your character and your kingdom throughout our worlds, through Yeshua, our Messiah. Guys, welcome back, guys and gals. I'm sorry, I say guys. I hope y'all understand. It's kind of like guys and like dude and whatever. <laughs> I hope y'all. I hope no one is offended that I just say masculine terms. Anyway, so hey, welcome back. Um, I hope that uh, you are doing well. Um, we are going to cover this week's parsha, and probably for the next couple of weeks, we are going to cover the parshiot 
Um, I specifically want to deal... So last few weeks, we've been dealing with the end of Shemot, Exodus, um, because I love the tabernacle and the temple. I love sacred space. And so we've been talking about... Uh, those, that's what these uh, Parshiot have been dealing with, and so we've been doing that. We, um, we were approaching the Gospels a few episodes back, and when we got to these Parshiot, I just thought, man, I really want to deal with the tabernacle. I really want to talk about this stuff. So that's kind of where we are. We're dealing with the tabernacle, and then we moved right into Vaikra uh, or Leviticus. And uh, I, I love, I love the tabernacle. I love talking about offerings, um, and just because all this stuff has been so misunderstood or not even approached in my upbringing. And so now that I'm finding the beauty of it and studying the beauty of it with people like Rico Cortez and Joseph Good, like I just love it. I love it. Love it, love it. It has radically transformed my life and my walk with God. So I just want to introduce some of these things to to you guys who may um, may also you know have a love for these things, but maybe you don't have time or don't have the resources to study them. Um, I want to uh, just kind of help and, and bring some of this this stuff out. Just give you something to think about, some things to think about. So. Uh, we are beginning last week. We had a double parsha, uh, which was uh, Vayakel and um, Pekudei. And uh, so this week, uh, uh, let me just drop something really quick on last week's uh, double portion. So uh, if you are not uh, familiar with, um, the Temple Institute has uh, uh, Rabbi Haim Richman, who is a wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher, wonderful man, uh, beautiful heart, and he does a weekly, or the Temple Institute does a weekly Parsha commentary. Uh, it's usually like 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes long. They're super easy to consume, but they are jam-packed uh, with great wisdom and, and great insight. Uh, rabbinic insight uh, for these uh, Torah portions that we're in. And being it's the Temple Institute, uh, when is a better time to listen and check in, check out what they've got going on than right now during the Torah portion uh, season that we're in and the Torah portion schedule that we're in? So I would invite you guys to, to go over to the uh, their YouTube uh, channel, go over to their website, uh, Temple Institute, and, and check out the stuff that they're doing. If you want to walk through um, the tabernacle and the offerings and the priesthood and all those things during the Parshot, why not? Why just read it? Why not get a little bit deeper? And as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, I think it's really important that those of us that have not studied the tabernacle or temple and, and, uh, and we, we have kind of a fixed uh, understanding, understanding of the tabernacle of offerings or sacrifices and of uh, the priesthood, those kind of three main things, I think it's really important for us to rethink those uh, and not not necessarily you may not change your ideas about the you know any of these things, but it may cause you to ask some different questions and asking questions is always a good thing always 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 a good thing um, I heard someone say last week uh, I think it was a it was a, a trey Gowdy who was an uh, uh, ex congressman um, from Kentucky I believe anyway he was being interviewed and he said um, you know, he said, uh, asking questions, he was talking about the importance of asking questions. And he said, I don't have the answers to, you know, these issues. He said, I may not even know what questions to ask. He said, but I am dedicated to asking the questions that lead to truth. And I just thought, man, that's, that's, yes, that's it. That's so awesome. And I want to have that attitude. And I want to share that attitude with our, with our IBR audience um, because when we're looking at scriptural stuff that we've, we're not grown up in and we're not accustomed to, um, you know, the, the customs and the traditions and 
and how these things are thought about and looked at from a historical perspective, um, then a lot of times we don't even know what questions to ask, right? It's hard to know even where to start. Um, we, we come to it with a, a truth, a mindset. And, and so sometimes in order to think around that mindset and look for different options, uh, it's hard to even know what questions to ask. Uh, but if we practice, if we start practicing the art of asking questions, you get better at it, I promise. And it doesn't take very long. You get better at asking questions and, and how to ask different kinds of questions, tough questions, easy questions, and, and you start to develop this vocabulary of, of asking questions. The thing that we have to remind ourselves is that getting to, quote unquote, the answer or the truth is not as important as learning how to take the journey to those places. The truth will come. Hashem will lead us into all truth. That's a promise given from heaven that, that is, is, is yea and amen. It's in concrete. We will end up in the truth. Um, but we want to short circuit the process and we just want somebody to tell us, well, how do, how do I think, or we just want to decide, um, you know, not spend a whole bunch of time and we want to be lazy or we want to just be, you know, whatever. And, and enjoying the journey, enjoying the, the progress of learning and the process of learning to ask questions is super duper important. So, uh, I would invite you to check out, of course, Rico Cortez, Joe Good, um, Temple Institute. Uh, there, I know there's a lot of the teachers that I'm missing, but uh, those are the ones that come to mind right now. So um, last week's uh, double portion, uh, Rabbi Richmond brought up something that I thought was really interesting, uh, that in the Jewish reckoning, that the sin of the golden calf uh, happened on Yom Kippur, or the, the forgiveness, rather. The, the atonement for the sin of the golden calf happens on Yom Kippur. Uh, which is something I knew a long time ago and, and just had forgotten, and he brought it back up last week, and I thought, oh, that's right. And so the, Rabbi Richmond deals with a question out of, um, out of the Midrash, uh, Midrash Tanhuma, um, where the Midrash asks a question, and it says, well, when was uh, Moshe given the uh, instruction to build the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle? We have it earlier in Exodus, like in the, in the, the portion before, or a couple portions before um, last week's portion. Uh, we have it, it's way earlier, like right after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And in, I think it's in Parshat Mishpatim. And so we have the, the commandment there. But um, uh, the Midrash asks, where, where was this commandment actually given? And in the Jewish dating of things, it's actually given on the first of, of Nisan, or, or right before the first of Nisan, they start building on the first of Nisan, and it is given after the sin of the golden calf and the atonement for the golden calf. So just think about this for a second. So Israel, Israel, and based on the, again, on the Jewish understanding, um, that Israel sins by the sin of the golden calf because of the pull of the mixed multitude. So the mixed multitude are really the ones that pushed uh, Israel to sin with the sin of the golden calf. Now, whether that's just uh, by a storytelling or whether that's the truth, I'll leave that for you to decide. Go back and read it. Think about it. It's just interesting how the story is told. Um, and so the, the Israelites, uh, they, this massive sin, right? The, this, the, the worst of all sins, in, in a sense, of what they could do is build this, this golden idol and worship it like it was Hashem. Uh, or worship Hashem by it, however you want to read that. And so what, what the, the timeline, the Jewish rendering of the timeline tells us, um, and something that Rabbi Richmond brought out, which I just I wept over because it was so incredible. 
I tell you what, let's just do this. Let's read from the Midrash uh, Tanhuma. Um, and this is, if you have like the Safaria app, S-E-F-A-R-I-A, wonderful project where they're translating a lot of, uh, of these uh, ancient Jewish writings and understandings into English from Hebrew. A lot of it's not translated, but they are working on it. So if you're looking for a place to donate uh, some funds, resources would be a great, great thing. The app is free and it's just, it's amazing. All of these things are at our fingertips uh, where it would cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars um, to have them in a, a formal library if you could even find them in English, which a lot of these are not translated, so you have to learn Hebrew. So Safari is a, a great, great thing. Uh, so this is Midrash uh, Tenhuma uh, Teruma 8. And it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, right? And it says, On which day did he relate to Moses the portion relating to the temple? It was on the Day of Atonement. That was so despite the fact that the Torah portion describing the sanctuary precedes the incident of the golden calf in the narrative, in the narrative, Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Shalom, said, there is actually no such thing as preceding or following in the Torah. Um, this verse refers to the arrangement of the Torah in its sections, uh, hence on the Day of Atonement that he told Moshe, make me a sanctuary, Mishkan. So what he's talking about is that the, the Torah is not in uh, in narrative order. You know, it's not in chronological order. It's a narrative order, but it's not in chronological order. And that's something that can really mess with us um, if we don't understand that. And, and, and many people don't understand that, that the Torah is not in chronological order. Uh, and so knowing that kind of helps us to go, if something doesn't seem to fit in chronological order, it's probably because it wasn't intended to. Um, and so uh, it goes on into section two of Terumah 8. Um, uh, whence do we know this to be so? Moshe went up on Mount Sinai on the sixth day of Sivan and remained there 40 days and 40 nights. He stayed another 40 days and then a final 40 days, totaling 120 days in all. Thus you find that it must have been on the day of atonement that he told Moshe about the temple, for it was on that day that they were forgiven. And on that day, the Holy One, blessed be he, told him, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell therein. So the nations might know that he had forgiven them for the episode of the golden calf. Let me read that again. He says, so that the nations may know that, the, that he had forgiven them for the episode of the golden calf. It was called the sanctuary of the testimony, or Mishkan Naidut. For it bore witness to the nations of the world that the Holy One, blessed be He, dwelled within their sanctuary, within their midst. Okay, so <laughs> I'm serious. This brought me to tears how beautiful this was. So why is this so important? If we look at the nations, uh, the surrounding nations of Israel, and we do this a lot where we compare the Torah to the other uh, cultures and other nations around the nation of Israel, uh, because it is similar. One of the most popular comparisons between the Torah uh, and another nation's kind of, you know, law code uh, uh, is uh, the Code of Hammurabi, uh, which is an ancient law code that looks in a lot of ways like Torah. And that shouldn't make us nervous. That actually should really, uh, really provide us a lot of context. Um, because if we look at, let's just use our current, uh, you know, geopolitical environment as an, as an example. Um, many nations uh, have very similar type laws. Right, we have some sort of freedom of expression. We have some sort of freedom of religion. Um, we have some sort of uh, you know, there's laws against murder and against uh, you know these these diabolical crimes and you know all these kinds of things. There's if you put a lot of our current nation's um, uh, constitutions up against each other, there's some similarities there. So it should not surprise us that in the Bible, 
that that the Torah is very similar to the laws of its time and to the nations of it. It addresses issues um, of of its time, and so uh, that shouldn't be a surprising thing. That actually should make us a lot more comfortable that Hashem works in in the midst of of where people are, and that's a beautiful thing in itself. But one of the uh, the ideas of the foreign nations is that their gods. Um, their gods were kind of like perpetually angry, and the, the people, the national, the, the nation had to kind of tiptoe around their national gods. And so they had idols where they, you know, they, they combed their hair and they dressed them and they fed them and just to, to keep the gods happy as their acts of worship. And if something ever went bad in the nation or if some, some king or some person did something wrong, it would anger the gods and then the gods had to be appeased. And so they, they, they may still be angry, but it was like the divine cold shoulder for, you know, generation or generations. And so there was always this penance and this appeasement. And, and so for the God not to wipe you out or not to cause another nation to take you over, which was the general punishment, um, they had to constantly be doing these things to appease their God. And so while Israel is much like the nations that, the, that they're surrounded by, uh, and that they're contemporary contemporary with the important thing to find in the Torah is the places where they're different, and this place is one of those. It, it, this is absolutely mind blowing. So what happens? Israel does this golden calf thing, right? While Moshe is up on the mountain, and they they sin the sin of the golden calf. Now, from a from what they know from Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, and then the the multitude around them, what they know from being in Egypt for. 400 years, 200 years, whatever, however you want to uh, talk about it, uh, however you count it, um, and there are a bunch of options available, that's, that's why I'm leaving room, but however long they were there, they knew an Egyptian system, um, an Egyptian deity system that was one of appeasement in a lot of ways. And so they would have thought, well, God is just going to crush the nation. Now, there is a consequence for that sin where 3,000 were taken, right, in that, in, in that atonement. But those 3,000, their bloodshed, in a sense, was a part of the atonement for the sin of the golden calf. And we can talk about atonement maybe in an, in an episode coming up uh, because atonement is something we really need to wrestle with um, because it's not what we think it is in, in a lot of ways. So uh, this, so what does God do? What does Hashem do? What does the God of Israel do? Instead of being appeased, God is not the God of appeasement. And we're going to talk about offerings in the second segment. So if you're interested in the sacrificial system, don't go away because um, I want to challenge the way we think about offerings a little, uh, not a little bit, fundamentally, the way we think about offerings. Um, what, what, what the God of Israel does is he says, you know what, instead of, I'm not like those other gods. I'm not like those other, I'm not going to shun you forever. I chose you and I bought you and I brought you out. Whether you're B'nai Israel or whether you're part of the mixed multitude that voluntarily came out and said all that, we, all that you say we will do and you join yourself to Israel, I am going to show you incredible mercy and I'm going to show you what kind of God I really am. You have defiled me and you have, you have, you have sinned so great in my sight but instead of um, casting you away and picking somebody else, instead of walking away and, or instead of destroying the whole nation and starting again with Moshe, Moshe um, as the conversation goes, I want you to do this. I want you to build a sanctuary. I want you to build a tabernacle so that I can dwell with you. 
And the reason why this is so powerful for me is because I think about in just everyday life, I think about myself and I think about well, when someone offends me or when someone encroaches you know, my space or, or someone does something that is, that is hurtful to me, what is my reaction? Is my reaction to pull away or is my reaction to draw closer to that person? And, I, and for me, I know 11 times out of 10, my reaction is to pull away. It's a, self, uh, it's a self-protection, right? It's self-preserving uh, my attitude towards people because I don't want to be hurt again. And, and so the way that the nature of God differs from my nature is that when, when God is offended or when, when the nation of Israel sins against God at the golden calf, he doesn't pull away. He doesn't draw back and say, well, now you just have to chase me and hopefully I'll be you know, good to you. He says, no, I, as a matter of fact, it, even in this great sin, I'm, I want to dwell with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually come and be in your midst because I have an incredible plan for you and I have a purpose and a function for you to perform. That's why I pulled you out of Egypt. And I want, I, I want to show you how to do this. So I'm going to do it with you because you, you kind of can't be trusted to do it on your own. So instead of letting you just, again, falter and figure it out and, and just go through all the, I want to dwell with you and I want to do it with you. And so it, it, it just, it rocked me as far as for, if I want to be an image bearer of God, if I want to be an image bearer of Hashem, and I'm in covenant with someone, I'm in relationship with someone, and they do something to hurt me, my response should not be to pull away and to place, and to, to, to have a chasm in that relationship. My attitude should be to draw nearer to that person, to reconcile and to restore that relationship, and for the bonds of our relationship to actually get stronger. I mean, just what an incredible, incredible lesson. Um, the the uh, Midrash Tanhuma goes on to say in section eight. Uh, so, so let me just recap. In, in the end of that paragraph, it, it talks about to build a sanctuary so that the nations would know that Hashem forgave them. That's, that's just so incredibly powerful. Uh, the next uh, part, uh, um, paragraph three of uh, Terumah eight, says the Holy One, blessed be He, declared. Uh, he declared, uh, let gold be placed within the sanctuary, listen to this, to atone for the gold which, with which the golden calf was fashioned. As it is said in Exodus 32, 3, and all the people broke off their golden uh, rings, thus they atoned with gold, and this is the offering which you shall make of them, gold, 25, 2. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, for I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds. That's from Jeremiah 30, chapter 17. Um, that that whole passage is absolutely incredible, uh, where the, the rabbis are asking these questions because things don't seem to fit. They don't seem to line up uh, chronologically, and they don't. Narratively, uh, this is how it, the, the Torah was put together. But it's just what an incredible lesson. And, and one, of the, one of the lessons, let's call this the, the, um, the first segment takeaway. The segment one takeaway is whenever we are offended, if we, are wanna, we wanna look like God and wanna act like God and we wanna bear his image, that starts first of all in our own personal lives and in the lives of the people closest to us, our family, uh, our, our fellowship, our, our congregation, uh, people, our neighbors, the people that are, that are, you know, whatever that looks like for you, the closest people to us, particularly our family. And when someone offends us, when someone sins against us, is it our, is it our 
uh, our reaction to, to, to pull back from those people, or is it our reaction to draw closer to them for the sake of restoration and partnership? We've talked about partnership all the way from, uh, from Genesis 1, that, that God created this whole earth and this whole cosmos and this whole thing, and I say it almost every week, so that he could partner with us to spread his image and to, to spread his kingdom, to establish and, and spread his rule of law, um, his kingdom rule. And God's, God's desire has always been a, an insatiable and, and, an, and an unrelenting desire to partner with mankind. We saw it in, 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 in Adam, in Adam. Um, we saw it in, again, most notably in Noah. We saw it again in Avram and Avraham uh, and his sons, the, the patriarchs. Uh, we saw it in Yosef. And now we see it in Moshe and in the nation of Israel. God's, God's vehicle for, for establishing and spreading his kingdom is partnership with humanity, period. End of story. That's the story of the scriptures. And that's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That is the, the gospel. Is, it includes the death of Messiah on the cross and resurrection, but it also includes this ability to partner with God now to spread the gospel, the kingdom, the basar uh, of, of his kingdom throughout the earth. So stick around for the second segment. We'll get into the offerings in Vayikra. See you on to the break. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of uh, Image Bearers Radio. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to call this because there's so many things to talk about. Um, so let's get into Vaikra. We kind of talked about uh, Vayakel and Peduke, um, or Pe- Pekude, excuse me. I always get that mixed up. Pekude, last uh, segment. So we're entering Vaikra. So the book of Leviticus is, um, is that book that traditionally in my upbringing, um, if I was going to do the Bible reading in a year. Um, I, I really dug Genesis, and it was awesome. I dug most of Exodus uh, until the Ten Commandments and the Golden Calf, and then after that, it just kind of, eh, whatever. Um, and then Leviticus it was just, it was like the, the trudge of all trudges to get through um, as a young person, even in, like in college and even in my older years, as trying to, to read through Vaikra, through Leviticus, um, because of all the repetition and, and all these kinds of things. I didn't understand it. And, and most of the reason why I think it's frustrating for people is that we don't have a context to put Leviticus into. Um, we, don't have a, we don't know that world. We don't understand um, what these things mean, what they re- represent, and we try to make them mean things. Um, and so, like I've talked about the last couple of weeks, I think it's really important as we're going through these uh, parashot, uh, that we we really exercise the 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 idea of not so much talking about what these uh, what these offerings and things represent later in the future, because to the people that these commandments are given to, to the priests on behalf of the people, to those people they weren't thinking about Yeshua and some kind of ultimate fulfillment. 
Um, this was for them in their time, in their context, so that they could have relationship with Hashem. And so it's important to understand and really get a good grasp on how these offerings and things functioned um, at the time they were given. And not so much, it's not spend so much time about how they, uh, you know, what they would mean or what they foreshadowed. And that's, that's a part of it. But we've done that foreshadowing thing. What we need to do is come back and actually get a concrete grasp, a foundational grasp of what they meant and how they functioned to the people to which they were given or to whom they were given. And, and then we need to see if that, uh, if that upholds what we, what we have traditionally seen as their foreshadowing or if those foreshadowings need to be tweaked a little bit and if they need to be, need to be edited maybe or updated a little bit. So it's a great exercise and it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. And, uh, and I'm glad you guys are here with me. All right, so... Uh, just a little intro. Um, we've, we've only got about 20 minutes, so I've got to make this super quick. So listen quick, and we'll get through it. Uh, so the title Leviticus, the word uh, Leviticus, uh, is actually comes from the Septuagint, the, the Greek version, the LXX, uh, the Greek version of uh, a translation of the Torah. And um, the book of Leviticus is predominantly, uh, of course, concerned with Levitical rituals, right? So this is not necessarily a book for everyone. And it's important to, to understand that while, again, we can see ourselves and our relationship with Hashem in the book of Vayikra, Vayikra is for Levitical uh, priestly ritual, right? So that's, that's why it's given, and that's the instructions. Um, the older Hebrew name uh, for the book is the Laws of the Priesthood, um, and today in Judaism it's referred to by the name Vaikra, which means "and he called," which are the first like three words of the book, right? And he called um, Vaikra, the first word of the book, the first phrase in English, um, and the and the Lord or Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him from inside the tent of meeting, and that's Vaikra uh, one one. Uh, Vayikra describes the sacrificial service and the sacred duties of the t- uh, tabernacle priests. Uh, it introduces ritual purity, the biblical diet, the calendar of festivals and the moedim, right, the appointed times, um, the laws of holiness, the laws relating to redemption, vows, tithes, uh, ethical instruction on holiness and holiness itself. And so there's all these things that come from Vayikra. So some, some really interesting things about Vayikra is um, that Vayikra is the center book of the Torah. It is the heart of the Torah. So if we, if we bypass or if we overlook Vayikra, we're overlooking the very heart of the entire Torah. You can know Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy uh, all you want. But if we don't have a good handle on Vayikra and understand the function and the purpose of the content of Vayikra, then we've missed the heart of the whole Torah. And that's so super important. Uh, and so it is in the middle for a reason. It is, it is the heart. Um, I can't believe, I think it might have been Chuck Missler maybe, some of you know that name, that did a thing, and I, I haven't independently verified this because I, it would just take so, so very long. Um, but, and I don't know if it's true, so you can check it out and tell me if this is, uh, you know, like a, a wives' tale or whatever. But um, that there's this thing called equidistant letter sequence. Uh, and again, I'm not sure how legit this is, but equidistant letter sequence basically says that in Bereshit and Shemot, in, in Genesis and, and Exodus, um, I think it's every 50th letter 
is uh, one letter of the Tetragrammaton. So uh, it's uh, it's Yod Hey Vav Hey. I'm sorry. It's it's Torah. It's T T R A H. I think is the way it works. Um, in in Genesis and Exodus, it's Torah. It's or every yeah every seventh letter. Anyway, I can't remember. Look up equidistant letter sequence, and you'll you'll see it out. But the the point is that in Genesis and Exodus, it spells uh, either either the Tetragrammaton or Torah one way. And then in Numbers and Deuteronomy, it spells it the same every so many letters. It's, it's, it's really consistent, but backwards. And so the idea is that it both points, they both point to Vayikra, to the middle. And in the middle book, there's another equidistant letter sequence where every so many letters, it spells out, I think, yud heh I think the Genesis and Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy are Torah, it spells out in reversing order. And then in the middle, it spells out the Tetragrammaton in Vayikra every so many letters. Anyway, so even if that's not true, it still goes to kind of help illustrate the fact that Vayikra is the heart. It's the center. It's the, it's the meat and potatoes of uh, the Torah. And if we don't spend time in Vayikra, then we're going to miss the whole heart of the Torah. And, we're gonna, and the reason why that's important is because we're going to come out with doctrines and theologies that are not correct because we're missing the whole heart and intent. One of the amazing things listening to Rabbi Richmond talk about the tabernacle in the... Um, I think it was in Vayakel Pekude. He talked about the that the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle was all about the heart. It's all it's everywhere. So for those of us that think or have been taught or you've heard that, well, you know, the tabernacle is just this and just that, and it's just their way to, you know, appease God and to keep God's anger off of it. No, that was the pagan nations around them. This is something totally revolutionary, the way that Hashem dealt with the nation of Israel that said, I'm going to take the systems that you're used to, the sacrificial systems and all these things that you're used to, but I'm going to show you what, what it's really about and how I want to relate to you through those means. And so it's all about the heart. It's not about appeasement. It's about the heart. Um, so this is uh, the Vayikra, the portion of Vayikra, the first parsha in, in, in the book of Leviticus is the 24th reading from the Torah. And... Um, so this portion deals specifically with the sacrificial service and describes the five um, major types, different major types of offerings. You're going to hear me use the word offering more than sacrifice um, because the word sacrifice for a Christian carries a lot of baggage, I find, um, that a sacrifice is something that generally, and I mean, you, while I'm talking about it, you kind of think, think about the way you think about sacrifice, the word sacrifice and the idea of the sacrificial system. Um, the the idea of sacrifice is that I'm I'm giving up something um, that that I hold dear in order to show God how much I love Him or something along those lines, and it can be tough because let's just face it we don't like giving up stuff, um, and and you could say well yeah that's kind of the whole point and yet mm, I don't know that it is um, I the the Hebrew word used in most of these passages is the word korban for sacrifice. Our offering, it's translated both ways, but karban um, comes from, is in, or is in the same family, is related to the word karav in Hebrew. Karav means to draw near. So just before we even jump into the types of karbanot, sacrifices or offerings, let's just think about this. So a sacrifice traditionally is something that we think that we have to give up in order for God not to be mad at us or for God to be pleased with us, right? In order to, to, to maintain a good relationship with God, we have to live a life of sacrifice. 
And, and that doesn't sound very appealing and inviting. Now, we know that when we give up of our own, um, you know, our own ways and our own desires and we yield to God, that, of course, it does bring fulfillment and it is the, the way to live. However, it's, it's, it's a self-demeaning and, and self-deprecating type of lifestyle where it reinforces the idea that we are not good, that God messed up when he, or not that he messed up when he made us, but that we are, we are unbelievably and almost irreparably corrupted by sin. Uh, and so anything in us, anything that exudes from us as humanity is automatically bad. And, and I just don't believe that. I, 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 from reading the scripture and from meditating on, on beginning in Genesis, I don't believe that's how God sees us. I think God created us, and he loves what he created. Um, yes, sin has messed us up, and it's twisted our judgment, and, and it's caused us to be disloyal to him. Um, and yet God, if, if, if what he says about Jeremiah is true about us, that he knew us um, before he formed us in our mother's womb, then God had a, a wonderful intent for us when he created us. He had a function for us. He had a thing that only we could do. And and, and I just, just because we pass through a birth canal, all of a sudden that is all corrupted and now it has to be, uh, I just, it's really tough for me to, to kind of follow that logic, even though that's what I grew up with and that's what I've, I've believed my entire life. Um, but it's been toxic for me and maybe it has for some of you. And what I, want, I don't want you to hear is that, well, we're not sinful people. We are. Uh, and that we're not broken and corrupted by sin. We are. And yet that is not the identity that I wear. The identity that I wear is a child of God redeemed by Messiah, by, by not only the blood that he shed on the cross, but by the blood that caused him to live an overcoming life. It's participatory. And so the, the ideas that, that we shift from the idea of sacrifice, that, oh, well, I just have to give because I'm worthless, and so I have to sacrifice everything in order that God will, you know, I will have a good, right relationship with God and, and will love him, I, 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 kind of, I reject that. And I love to think about the idea of offering, karban, from, from the family of words, you know, from karav, related to karav, to draw near. So these offerings, these sacrifices that Israel was given from the get, like from the jump, are not appeasements. They are not, they are not because God is bloodthirsty. They are not because, because God is, you know, has to have, has, something has to die because we're sinful. Um, and that's, you know, when we talk about Yeshua in that way, that's like, it's cosmic child abuse. Um, and many, many Christians that I know that, that are, are, love God and are wonderful people, but we live with this, this toxic theology that, well, God is perfect and we are not, and so it invokes his wrath and something has to die. So in the Old Testament, it was, it was poor, innocent animals. Some, there's got to be bloodshed somewhere. Something has to die because God is so vengefully angry with our sin and so in the, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, it was these innocent animals that had to die because God is just bloodthirsty. And then in the, in the, in the Gospels, it, it, is, it is Yeshua. God is so angry, somebody's got to die, so he kills Yeshua. I know this, gonna make some, this is probably making some people uncomfortable, but I have real problems with that. And I have real questions about that. Not that Yeshua is not the atoning sacrifice. Not that he is not Messiah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the mechanics of that and how they work and how we think about them um, and then how we think about ourselves in that light, it, it makes a difference. So carbonote, drawing near. So I want you to think off the jump, um, as we read through Vayikra, these offerings are all for the purpose and the instructions are being given to the Kohanim and to the Levites as a way for people to draw near to God. They are to draw, the way which they draw near to Him. Okay, so... Uh, 
the authors and the editors of the Torah, Moshe, and the, and the later later compilers were uh, were nice enough that they made this really clean for us. And the first five chapters of Vayikra deal with the five main types or major categories of korbanot. And so uh, in the first chapter, we deal with the olah, or the burnt offering. Um, that is in Hebrew, the olah. It's the burnt or ascending offering. Uh, that is the olah. That is in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Vayikra 2, we have the grain offering, which in Hebrew is called the mincha. Mincha, M-I-N-C-H-A-H, mincha. Uh, there's a similar word, minhag. It ends with a gimel. That's not the same thing. This is mincha. That's in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we deal with the peace offering, or in Hebrew, the shlamim, uh, the shlamim offering. In uh, chapter 4, we deal with the sin offering, or the hatat. And then in chapter 5, we deal with the asham, or the guilt offering. And that asham and hatat, the sin and guilt offerings, hatat and asham, the sin and guilt offerings, um, those are okay ways to think about them, but we'll get into that a little bit a little bit later. Um, just as a heads up, we're probably going to continue this next week because I spent too long on Vayakel and, and Peku Day. So, um, so these, let's talk about the purpose, the functional purposes for these offerings. We talked about it a little bit uh, already. And so we're going to ask the question, um, do these offerings atone for sin? Okay, is that the purpose? Is the function of them to atone for sin? Well, let's look at Vayikra chapter 1, verse 4, and it tells us, uh, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, the olah, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So the point I want to get to is that when we think atonement, what automatically are we thinking of? What does atonement function to deal with? What is atonement, the purpose for atonement? Well, it's to, it's to atone, whatever that means, for sin, right? Uh, so there's a passage, that, a verse that many of you may be thinking about in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And this is, uh, this is Paul, chapter 9 is, is dealing with the blood of Messiah, right? He's dealing with the shed blood of Messiah. And in chapter 9, verse 22 um, or in 20, let's start in verse, uh, let's see, verse 20, I guess. Uh, no, 19. When Moshe had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people, right? And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, this is the, the money verse, verse 22. In fact, the law requires, or the Torah requires that nearly... Nearly is the key word. Everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that verse caused us, among a couple of others, has really caused us to to have this understanding that, well, all of the bloodshed in the tabernacle was because of sin, right? Kind of that idea that I was talking about earlier. All of the bloodshed in the tabernacle was because of sin, uh, because the, that is the only way that, that people can be forgiven and have right relationship with God is because of, of, of shed blood. And while that is true, I want to read a, a, a troubling verse or a challenging verse in the fifth chapter of Leviticus. This is the Vayikra chapter 5, verse 11. It says, if, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, which bloodshed, they are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah, of finest flour for a hatat or a sin offering. 
and they must not put olive oil or incense in it because it is a chatat, and they will bring to the priest and a handful as a memorial portion, burn on the altar, etc. So there's what, I, what the point I want to get to is that there is atonement or cleansing with blood. There is a cleansing that comes from blood. There's also a cleansing that comes from water. In the beginning of this, Paul accurately states that there's, there's blood mixed with water, scarlet, right, etc. And, and that the people, the scroll, the tabernacle, and its instruments were all sprinkled with this blood. This is for a cleansing ritual. The tabernacle doesn't need forgiveness, right? The articles of the tab- the scroll of the Torah doesn't need forgiveness, so my point is, is not that, that, that sin is not forgiven by blood. It is, or atoned for by blood. It is. However, we have to think more broadly about what, blood, uh, what purpose blood takes in the whole atonement process, and we need to think about atonement more broadly and more generally than just shed blood, forgiveness sin, now I'm okay with God again. That's not how it works. That's not, not at all how it works. Um, so just something to chew on until we kind of bring this to a close in the next, in the upcoming weeks. Um, so when we deal with chapter one in the Ola offering, the, the whole burnt offering, why would anybody bring a whole burnt offering? Is it for sin? No, it's actually not. The whole burnt offering is not for sin at all. It is a free will offering, a terumah. It is a free will offering of thanks and of worship to God. And so it's not, this animal doesn't have to die just because God's mad at you and brought you sin. No, you give this animal as a, as a way to worship and as a way to thank God. It's a, it's a total, it has nothing to do with sin. Uh, Leviticus 1, uh, verse 4 that we read earlier, this laying of the hands on, uh, on the sacrifice, this is an act of confession. This is an act of confession. We'll talk about this next week, about the steps that were taken in actual, the actual offering process. But it's a, it's, a, it's a free will offering that, and that is given as an act of confession. And it says um, that it will make atonement for you, but this is not about sin. The, the Olah has nothing to do with sin. So then, therefore, again, atonement must mean something else, or it must mean something uh, in addition to what we think it already means. Um, let's look at Leviticus chapter 16, and we're quickly running out of time, but we're going to get as far as we can today. Uh, let's look at Vayikra 16 and verse 21. And it tells us that in verse 21, uh, this is verse 20. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place. Now, let's stop right there. Aaron makes atonement for the most holy place. Did the most holy place sin? No, obviously not. So again, atonement functions more broadly than just dealing with sin. And we'll talk about what that means again later. Uh, when he made, finished making atonement for the holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat way into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. So the laying on the hands of, is not just simply a simple act of transference, but it is, the, it is the confession that is done when one lays hands that is really uh, really important, and that is part of the functional part of the offering. Uh, let's go back to Vayikra 4 real quick, and we're going to read a couple verses, 27 to 29. It says, if any member of the community, uh, the community sins unintentionally, hang on a second. Well, let's read the rest, and then we'll deal with this as we close the episode. If any member of the community sins unintentionally, 
and does what is forbidden in any of Hashem's commands, when they realize their guilt and the sin they have committed uh, becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect. They are to lay their hand on the head of the sin offering. That's the chatat. Remember chapter 4. Chapter 1 is Ola. Uh, chapter 2 is uh, the Mincha. Chapter 3 is Shlamim. Chapter 4 is chatat. So we're dealing with a sin offering. Um, it, they are to lay their hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place uh, of the, the burnt offering. So, this is dealing with hatat, with sin offering. Chapter 4 deals with sin offerings. We're going to go through each one of these in more detail next week. Chapter 4 deals with hatat. We said that meant sin, right? Transgression. And yet, the, verse 27 says, If any member of the, of the community sins unintentionally, unintentionally, let me ask you a question, because I didn't know this until, until several years ago, and when I found out, it absolutely wrecked my entire world. Did you know, or were you ever taught in Sunday school or in, you know, in church or whatever, did, were you ever taught that there, was a, uh, there, was, there were two main categories of sin in Scripture? There are, there are one category called unintentional sins and one, in, one called intentional sins. Um, I, I, was, I don't think I was ever taught that. <laughs> I don't ever think I was ever taught that distinction, yet the Scripture deals really specifically with these just the fact, we, we won't have time to get in and read the next passage that I wanted to uh, this week. We'll get into it next week, I promise, so s- stay tuned if you're interested in this conversation. But let's just, for the, the couple minutes we have left, let's just really kind of think about this. There are two main categories of sin in Scripture. There are intentional, uh, unintentional, and intentional. Our, um, the, the Scripture says, Hashem says that when someone sins presumptuously, that is intentional. That's like premeditated murder. The difference in the the in American justice system between um, you know unintentional homicide and our manslaughter and murder homicide are the ma- a matter of intent. And God, that where does that come from? That comes from Torah. Did were you ever told that there are things that you just do accidentally, and that more than that, you know that we know that we sin, we don't realize it sometimes. That, that God actually makes space for that in his Torah? That's, the implications of this, guys, are phenomenal. Some of which we'll read, uh, we'll begin next week in, in Numbers chapter 15, and we'll read, and then we'll talk about kind of what the implications are of this unintentional and intentional sin are. So I hope this conversation has been uh, helpful, has been enlightening and encouraging, and I hope it's been challenging, giving you something to think about. Until next week, shalom, shalom. Shalom.